0: This podcast is brought to you by Xander Fryer, the co-author of a new book entitled Mastering the Art of Success. In Greg's interview with Xander, they discuss the power of defining your purpose and learning how this simple process can bring more joy, happiness, and fulfillment into your life. Xander is a master coach who studied under Jack Canfield and helps his clients to achieve the success they deserve. Please listen to podcast number six fifty eight with Xander Fryer about the pursuit of purpose. For the latest free entrepreneurial training from Xander, please go to www.xanderfryer.com backslash go. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Mike, as I do all the time, uh, you know, these podcasts, you do them. They wouldn't be anything without listeners. And my listeners are faithful. They come back again and again. Um, they constantly ping me and say which ones they like. And that's what I love. And today, actually joining us from Florida, but he lives in San Francisco is Mike Robbins, and we're going to be speaking with Mike about his new book called Bring Your Whole Self to Work, How Vulnerability Unlocks Creativity, Connection, and Performance. Good day to you, Mike.
1: Yeah, Greg, it's great to be back on the podcast. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I appreciate you joining us. I know you're super busy. You're getting ready to launch this book uh, May 1st, and we're happy to have you on and, and talk to you about the book. And for my listeners, if you want to know more about Mike, just go to www.mike-robbins.com and you just type in book after that, forward slash book, and you'll see the book there. Um, Also, he's got a podcast show as well um, that he does, uh, that he did around the book, which we're going to be talking to him about as well. And... It is truly an interesting uh, journey Mike has had. I virtually interviewed him for before for a couple of his other books, but the last one was Focus on the Good Stuff. And so if you go to Amazon or you go to his website, you'll see all his various books and his accolades. And Mike, I'm going to let people know um, just a little bit about you. As I said, he's an author of Focus on the Good Stuff. Be yourself, everyone else is already taken and nothing changes until we do. Um, which has been translated in 14 different languages. His fourth book, Bring Yourself to Work, work, which we're gonna talk about here in a minute. Uh, He's an expert in teamwork, leadership, emotional intelligence. Mike delivers keynotes and seminars around the world that empower people, leaders, and teams to engage in their work, collaborate, and perform their best. Um, His clients include Google, Wells Fargo, Microsoft, Charles Schwab, Twitter, Deloitte, U.S. Department of Labor, uh, Harvard University, Chevron, and the list goes on. Um, he was featured on ABC News and Oprah uh, Radio Network and Forbes, Fast Company, and The Washington Post and Wall Street Journal and many others. So, Mike, it's a pleasure having you on, and <clears throat> I know that you this new book means a lot to you. And yeah. as I was going through it, um, I really got this story up front. You have this personal story you tell about your sister, Lori, that really sets the stage for the book. It really does. And I know intimately this issue as well because I have a son who has chronic myelogenous leukemia. Mm. So would you be willing to let the listeners know the importance of the story and how it impacts your views about bringing your whole self to work?
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate you asking that, Greg. You know, I, I write about this in the introduction. I um, I w- I was excited to write this book and I'm excited about it being out. I, I agreed uh, on the book itself back in the end of 2015 with my publisher. Um, and my sister Lori had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer back in 2012, about nine or 10 months after our mother had passed away from lung cancer. And so it was, it had been a really difficult journey for her. And she got really sick and then went in remission and it looked like she was going to be fine. And then the cancer came back. And so we knew going into 2016 that there was a chance she might not make it. Um, things escalated really quickly. And and within the first week of the year, she actually passed away. Um, and as I write about in the introduction, it was, you know, was the experience of her being sick and her passing, obviously, for anybody who's ever lost anybody close to them knows how painful that can be. And I've lost both my parents. And as I was experiencing that and going through the grief of that, I was also really challenged by the fact that, um, you know, I was, I had agreed to write this book and was my schedule was such that, you know, what I do for a living is I, I travel around the country, like I'm here in Florida right now, speaking to, you know, a lot of groups, corporate clients bring me in to speak to their teams, which I love doing. But how was I supposed to continue, you know, with my schedule and my life and my work, um, as I was experiencing this deep grief and shock. And even though Lori had been sick for a while, her her passing just came very quickly and, and suddenly and painfully. Um, and you know, it, it, it was, it was a journey for me. And And part of why I share that in the book is because, you know, not everybody's dealing with the loss of their sister or the loss of anyone close to them, but you know, part of what I've learned over the 17 years of doing my work is, you know, we're all dealing with being human. And sometimes that involves loss and grief and pain. And sometimes that involves joy and excitement and, you know, milestones in positive ways. And most of the time it involves some combination of everything. Um, And I think for us to really be most effective in our work and for the organizations or the work that we do, for the environment to be most conducive for us to do our best work, there's got to be space where we can be ourselves and we can be human. And it's amazing. I mean, in those first few weeks and months after Lori died, I was re- it was really raw. So I didn't share a lot about it right away, even though I'm pretty open and transparent in my work and in my writing and in my speaking. But as I started to open up and share a little more, It was amazing to me, Greg, because so many people had grief stories to share with me or their own stories of loss or or their own experience. And while the book isn't really about grief per se, even though I opened the book with it, I I realized, wow, and I've known this, but this was another, you know, reminder of it that we're all carrying so much in life and sometimes just given the permission to share some of it, the floodgates open.
0: Oh, yeah, it's it's certainly something that's uh, very cathartic. Very healing to to share these kind of things with people. I know yeah. as we as we go through our lives, we lose. I've, both my parents are gone. Um, I have a son with leukemia. Yeah. I, I've everybody's got something, and that leads me to this next kind of question. Actually, you did a series of interviews for this pod fo- podcast that I told the listeners about earlier. Bring your whole self to work, and one was with Chip Connelly and yeah. you know chip is he's a i'm a fan of his he did yeah. uh he did a forward in my book uh he's a great guy
1: he's great yeah
0: he he is a wonderful guy and his story is very painful as well i'm not going to go into that but he said holding things back about ourselves is hard and actually takes energy if we're willing to do the inner work of more fully understanding who we are and what truly matters to us we'll have more clarity um when we're working and when we're doing when we know it's a right fit, how do you help people obviously find the right fit?
1: Hey, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, it's it's a unique individual process. And one of the things that Chip talked about in that interview that I did with him on my podcast and Chip and I've gotten to know each other over the last number of years. And he's somebody who I really respect and admire because he's been very successful in business You know, he founded um, a great hotel chain called Joie de Vivre um, and grew that and then sold it and is now actually working um, as an executive at Airbnb and has written a number of wonderful books. But Chip's somebody who's been able to navigate both the business world and the sort of world of personal growth and development, which I know you know everybody listening to us and and your great podcast here is focused on as well and so i think part of the journey it's a long way of me saying one of the things that i've always been an advocate for and and my books and my work are really they're about personal growth but in the context of work and so i think for people to really find the right fit there has to be some desire and some Uh, inclination to do some inner work if you will and again it can look very differently it's not prescriptive from my perspective I'm not telling people well, you have to do this practice or this process or follow this tradition but it's some sense of being willing to take a look inside and figure some things out for ourselves and as we all know on our journey wherever we are that process twists and turns and takes lots of formats and changes and evolves as we grow so I also think sometimes we get into a particular career or type of work, or even organization, and it may be the right fit for a while, and then it's not. Mm-hmm. So it's an it's an ever evolving process.
0: Yeah, and his comment about finding what fits for us is just so resonant because frequently, you know, you you get to meet with all these teams, and you can tell um, from your intuition, you know, what's right sometimes with a team because you talk yes. about teamwork here. And what's not? What's the difference in a champion team? And a lot of times, it's the team players, right? It's this. Oh, absolutely. It's this. It's this uh, mixture. This special elixir that happens. And you have five pr- principles that make up the context of the book. Yeah. And and I think that's the key to this book. Really, is these five. And I want to make sure we touch them. So the first is being authentic. Yep. Um, I know my listeners have heard plenty about being authentic. But in your estimation, what does it take for one to truly live and act authentically? And in that context, your story in the chapter where you go to pitch your book to your prior publisher, (laughs) I think was was really a good story to maybe kind of set the context for this about being authentic.
1: Yeah, so I go, you know, my first book, you mentioned it earlier. I wrote a book, I'll Focus on the Good Stuff, and it was published by – A publisher called Josie Bass, which is in San Francisco where I live. And it's an imprint of a larger publisher called Wiley that's right outside of New York City. And I was talking to my editor, Alan, um, and he asked if I had an idea for a second book. And I said, well, I've been thinking about writing a book on authenticity. And we had a brief conversation. He called me back the next day and he said, hey, I've been talking to the team. There's some interest in a book on authenticity. Why don't you come in and we'll talk about it? So we schedule a meeting for the next week. And I just thought it was going to be kind of a formal, dis- informal discussion, just chatting. You know, I had some ideas. I didn't know it was going to be a full on pitch meeting. But I get there, we get in the conference room and it's a pitch meeting with Alan and the team. But he said, before we start, Mike, Deborah's coming. And Deborah's the president of Josie Bass, who I'd never met. And he said, and her boss from Wiley, he flew in from New York. So now I'm like really nervous. Like, oh, gosh, I'm excited that, they're, wow, they must be really interested. But I'm like, whoa, you know, so they come into the room and so tell us about the book and i start going into my pitch and you know instead of my nerves getting better so to speak as i was talking about they were getting worse i was getting more anxious and and i was pretty good like a lot of people listening can probably relate pretty good at pretending like i'm not nervous when i really am but after a few minutes i was just i was like having this emotional wrestling match with myself inside and it was driving me crazy and i stopped and i looked right at deborah and i just said hey deborah listen I know I mentioned this a few minutes ago when you came into the room. I said, it's really an honor to meet you. I I appreciate you being here. And I said to her boss, and you flew all the way in from New York. I said, but I noticed that I'm feeling really nervous and I'm trying hard to impress you. I said, can I stop doing that now and just be myself? And, you know, literally, Greg, as as that was coming out of my mouth, the voice in my head was yelling at me like, don't say that out loud. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Right. And it was like this awkward moment after I said it, there was like, I could look around the table and people were like, did he really just say that out loud? But what was interesting after the awkward pause was that Deborah laughed, so did her boss, so did everybody else around the table, so did I. And more than laugh, it was like I exhaled and said, listen, I'm not sure I was totally prepared for what this meeting is, but here's what I know about authenticity. I know it's important. I know it's important to me and just about everybody I know in work, in life, in relationships. It's just important, I said, but I also know that it's hard. And I want to write a book about that. And then we proceeded to have a 45-minute discussion about that, why is it hard? what makes it unique and challenging in their company and in their industry and some of what I see. And by the end of the meeting, you know, they ended up deciding to, that. They wanted to publish the book, but I learned something really important that day. And this was like a decade ago. I ended up writing that book and have been studying authenticity since that like being prepared is important, but a lot of times being present and showing up in the moment is as important, if not more important. And so uh, that's what authenticity is really about.
0: Definitely, and I know that uh, since then you've been going to the Wisdom 2.0 conferences, and obviously, yep. you know I've been doing a lot of deep inner work for the last uh, I can't even tell you it's it's been probably close to 35 years, and I think it is important. And as I've done these podcasts, I'm not on podcast 680. You yeah, you get no. to you have to get comfortable with yourself, and you say this. You mentioned that we need to remove self-righteousness and add a big dose of vulnerability. In your estimation, what does it really take for somebody to be as vulnerable as you were? I mean, look, most people try to put up um, (laughs) some kind of outwardly appearance that things are better than they are, they're richer than they are, whatever it is that they seem to think that they need so they can get something. Because a lot of times it is... About getting something. And I think you need to remove the fear about whether or not you're going to get something because yeah. it isn't really about you getting something. It's about you being authentic and people understanding who you are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well and I love, you know, Brene Brown defines vulnerability as emotional exposure, risk, and uncertainty. Mm-hmm and one of the questions that she likes to ask and I like to ask this question as well is like can you think of anything meaningful or important that you've ever experienced or accomplished in your life that did not involve emotional exposure risk or uncertainty there really isn't anything if it mm-hmm. means something if it matter i mean you know we can do things that don't matter and but if you so i try to think of that myself in situations that matter to me when I want something. And that's the trickiest one. It's like, I really want something. I'm going for something. I'm driving for something. I'm trying to get some outcome. But I realize that part of, and this comes up very partially from my training as an athlete for many years. I played baseball all growing up and played in college and got to play professionally for a few years before I got injured. But I remember the experience as an athlete. I really wanted to win every time I played. And in baseball, there's just a ton of failure. So, like, I failed a lot, even though I was good. (laughs) Right. And that actually helped me because it made me realize, and I try to remember this even 20-plus years since I stopped playing baseball, if I really want it and it really matters and it's going to happen, it's going to involve me putting myself out there on the field where I might win and I might lose, I might love it, or I might get my heart broken, but, like, nothing's going to happen if I don't play.
0: It's true. And I think the most important thing to remember for people that are listening to this podcast and listening to Mike is that, you know, you never really fail unless you don't get back up again. Right. Yeah. And I think the key is it's about picking yourself back up again, no matter how challenging it can be, no matter how depressed you become. um, Things will get better. Now, your second principle is to utilize the power of appreciation and I think yeah. appreciation basically helps things get better. You yeah. state that appreciation is about acknowledging a person's inherent value. It's not about recognizing their accomplishments.
1: Right. So
0: if you would share with us how appreciation makes a difference in the workplace and why it's so challenging to express our appreciation at work, you actually cited some statistics as well in the book about yeah. how appreciation really affects performance.
1: Well, it does. You know, it's interesting. I'm actually down here in Florida speaking at two different recognition events for two of my clients. And it's funny because these people are here getting these awards. They're being recognized. But when I speak, I'm talking to them and congratulating them on being recognized for the award, which is great. But then explaining the distinction between recognition, which is about performance and appreciation, which is about people. And some of the statistics that we found that I found when I was researching for Bring Your Whole Self to Work, one of them is there was a study done at Wharton Business School and they found um, they, they studied actually university fundraisers and they took a group of fundraisers and half of them were just given a very brief appreciative talk by the head of fundraising at the universities. Thank you for your work. Thank you for all you do. I know it's hard to get on the phone and you know, call people and ask them for money, but we really appreciate that. The other half was not given that same sort of appreciative pep talk and then they tracked them over the next week and over just a week's time, the group that was thanked for doing the work that they do made 50% more calls than the group that wasn't thanked. So, just that little bit of, and that, in my estimation, from what I teach to leaders and teams, that's about as generic as you can get. It's not very personal and specific. It was just like a, hey, good job, we appreciate it. But that just in and of itself, people are like starving for appreciation. You know, Glassdoor, which is a company that's based in Marin County, and, you know, people can go on to glassdoor.com and basically, if you leave a company or you work at a company, you can give an honest, sort of unfiltered opinion of what it's like to work there and do it anonymously so that. You know, people know if I'm, hey, I'm looking for a company to go work for, I'm going to go on Glassdoor. It's kind of like Yelp or some of these other places where you can check out reviews. But Glassdoor also studies, you know, different trends in in the work world and and in the workforce. And they found that 82% of people said that they were more motivated to work harder when their boss or their manager appreciated them. 52% of people said that they would have stayed longer at a company that they left if they felt more appreciated And only 37% of people said, I work harder when my boss or my manager is hard on me and or I fear losing my job. And so, again, we're motivated in a lot of ways by feeling valued and appreciated, in addition to being recognized for our work. I mean, that's important, too. But when you separate it out, sometimes there isn't a specific outcome to recognize. You know, one of the examples I use in the book is from when I played baseball. I was a pitcher. And, you know, even if you're not a baseball fan, you probably know when the pitcher doesn't do well in a baseball game, they literally remove you from the game. They take you out of the game, like in front Mm -hmm. of everybody. And it's a pretty humiliating experience. And oftentimes when I would get pulled out of the game after I didn't do well, my teammates would just leave me alone because that was kind of the social, cultural norm in that really competitive environment. And I didn't want any recognition. I didn't deserve any recognition because I had done a bad job, not just personally for the team, but what I really wanted in those situations with some personal appreciation for me, some reminder of like hey man, we got you, we care about you, you you know you're still part of the team. That's the fear that we often have when we fail is that we're going to be excluded, harshly judged, criticized and eventually something really bad will happen.
0: Well, I think in particular when you work in teams, it's so important this concept of appreciation. It yes. also ripples throughout the whole organization from the top down. Um, If there's a servant leadership model, obviously, inherent within most of these organizations, hopefully, to say, hey, look, I'm here to help and serve you, to help you get to wherever you need to go. And that is the role of the CEO and the rest of the management of the company. So, you know, uh, obviously, your fifth principle is the focus on emotional intelligence. And the concept was coined by Daniel Goldman in yes. nineteen ninety five and it's spread throughout the work communities. Um, it's talked about prolifically. And there are four components of emotional intelligence. Um, you know, why to employees that are listening to this or to upper management are listening, why should they care so much about their employees becoming more emotional intelligence? What do the numbers prove out?
1: Well, there's a couple things about emotional intelligence. I think, you know, look, if we're thinking about this in the context of a large organization, a big company, if maybe people listening, you work for a company like that or you're a manager in a company like that. But even for any of us who work for ourselves or have small businesses of our own or entrepreneurs, the thing about emotional intelligence is, I mean, look, the four components are there's there's a self component and a sort of relational component. And then there's sort of two sub components in each. Right. It's self-awareness and self-management are the first two parts and they're kind of like 1a and 1b of emotional intelligence and then there's social awareness and relationship management that has to do with how we interact with people and in all of the work that we do is as much technology as we have these days some of the most important and critical aspects of our work have to do with how we deal with ourselves and how we relate or interact with other people I mean in a lot of the data we're seeing now a ton of jobs that exist today will not exist within five or 10 years because of artificial intelligence and robots. Like they'll be able to literally do the task. What can't be recreated by robots and artificial intelligence is social and emotional intelligence. Like they can't understand the nuances of different cultures and different interactions and what people need and using intuition and a lot of the things that I'm sure you talk about here, Greg, on your podcast with other authors and people who come on. So for all of us, it's important for us to enhance our emotional intelligence skills. You know, I was giving a talk. I talk about this in the in, in that third principle on emotional intelligence in the book. I was giving a talk to a group of leaders at Adobe um, in Silicon Valley on emotional intelligence. And Jeff, who was running talent at the time at Adobe, introduced me and he said, Mike's here to give us a talk on emotional intelligence. He said, I've always believed that IQ gets you your job, but EQ gets you promoted. And I walked up and I said, Jeff, thanks for the introduction. You know, I said what Jeff just said basically is a succinct way of what I'm about to say for the next hour. <laughs> and, you know, that really if you want to move forward in your career or whatever that is, a lot of the intangible aspects of success have to do with our ability to manage ourselves and manage our relationships and inside of organizations. And I see this a lot now that I'm working working at a pretty high level and sometimes at the executive team level inside of some big companies, when they're having conversations behind closed doors about talent and who's the next generation or the next level of leaders coming up, they're not usually talking about how smart and talented people are. They're talking about things like executive presence, which what does that basically mean? How does that person show up? They're talking about how people deal with stress, how they deal with change and conflict, and all of those things fall into the realm of emotional intelligence.
0: Well, one of the areas that's helped you to continue to grow your own personal emotional emotional intelligence has been the Wisdom Two Point conferences. I mentioned yes. it uh, before. Tremendous conference. Uh, many of the actual speakers at the conference have been guests on my show, and sure. you 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 talk about John Kabat Zinn in there. Um, yep. at, at length, but you also mentioned mindfulness is one of the most powerful ways for us to deepen our self awareness and yep. expand our capacity for self management. Yep. Um, in on your per, on your personal side, Mike, mm-hmm. um, where has because I know you used to just give it lip service. Um, <laughs> you even mentioned it in the book that you know you used to talk about it, but you weren't really doing it. Where is this mindfulness and meditation and your practice of spirituality really made the biggest impact on how you've started to think about how you work with teams?
1: Well, it's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I would say what's interesting, Greg, over 17 plus years of doing this work, the world, worlds of personal growth, which you obviously focus a lot on here on the podcast, and professional growth, which used to sort of seem like they were in different spheres and different realms have come together a lot. And the Wisdom 2.0 conference is a great example of that. And anyone listening who's not familiar started about seven, eight years ago with the idea of how do we bring, you know, this whole world of mindfulness and meditation and even spiritual practice together with technology and business and where's the intersection. And what's happened, and many people who are listening have probably seen this, you know, we now have so many mainstream media outlets, if you will. You pick up Time Magazine, you pick up the New York Times, and there's all these studies and articles about, you know, the power of mindfulness and meditation. And so it's been interesting just to see it, you know, come through science and other places where, where, you know, people are talking about things they weren't talking about five, ten years ago, which I love. In my own personal life, as I talk about in the book, you know, I've been meditating off and on for 20 plus years, but found for a long time... It was challenging for me personally how do i integrate this into my life and then once i got it more integrated into my life there was a sense for me when i would go inside these corporations right here i am writing books and doing things that are all very much about personal growth but then i'm getting hired by you know wells fargo and chevron and kaiser and you know citibank and whoever to come in and help us be more effective help us be more successful and there was a part of me that was thinking well I don't want to get too weird. I don't want them to think I'm strange. I don't want, so what do I talk about? But I think the combination of the deepening of my own practice and realizing what an impact it continues to have in my own life, as well as I think culture changing a bit and it becoming more sort of mainstream acceptable to be talking about these things, the combination of those two things has had me feel that much more comfortable and confident bringing it forward with some of my clients. And then we're seeing the benefits of it you know and again all of us who have our own personal and spiritual practices in life know that when we're actually practicing the practice it calms us down it makes us more open and available it has so many positive so much positive impact that when we can start to bring more of that into work that becomes really powerful
0: well it is so important that we can bring our whole self to work not you know to play off the book so much but the reality is that we need to determine what that whole self is. Yes. And sure. your sixth principle is to embrace the growth mindset. Yeah. Uh, now you relate a great story about how we ask ourselves questions and mm-hmm. that reframing our questions make a huge difference with Absolutely. relation to how our mindset looks at things or our purview. Yeah. Um, do you uh, remind, do you mind relaying the story in the book uh, your baseball career and it ended as you said as a result of an injury but there was a gentleman who asked you after it ended to reframe your question yeah and and I think it's a really a good story because it got you to reframe the question such only one word changed in the sentence yeah um, that really made a difference and I think if people would just change one word in their sentences when they're down and they're looking at themselves differently uh, it, it, it could make a big difference
1: Absolutely, my friend Brian took me out to lunch A few months after my baseball career had ended, so I was 23 when I got hurt Started playing baseball when I was 7 I was in the minor leagues with the Kansas City Royals Tore ligaments in my elbow Over the span of two years Had three surgeries on my arm, wasn't able to come back Was forced to retire at the age of 25 And I was, you know, still a really young man But pretty lost Because I'd been very focused on this one activity And now I was, what am I going to, you know, I'd gotten a job Working in the tech world back in San Francisco, but still was was kind of spinning. And and Brian who was a few years older than me, was concerned about me. And he said, "Listen, Mike, when you go through something tough in life, you often we all often ask ourselves this really simple but very dangerous question." He said, "You're probably asking yourself this question. I'd be asking myself this question if I were you." He said, "But here's the question: Why did this happen to me? Or why is this happening to me?" And he said, "And look, it makes sense." He said, "But if you keep asking that question, the dangerous part is it just keeps leading you down a path." where you're the victim and it's not fair and you got a raw deal and it just it's not gonna empower you. He said, but if you change one word in that question, it'll fundamentally change the way you're relating to this challenge and any challenge you face. He said, change the word two to the word for. Why is this happening for me, mm-hmm. right? And I didn't totally buy into what he was saying at the time, quite frankly, but I trusted him and I knew he had my back and I knew he had my best interest, but I started, I, I thought about it and I kept thinking about it and it wasn't an overnight thing, But over a period of time, asking myself that question over and over again did start to reframe and shift the way I was relating to that challenge and that transition in my life. And now when things come up that I don't like and wish wouldn't happen and don't understand and think are bad, I try to remember to ask that question because it does shift me and it can shift any of us into more of what we call a growth mindset where we're looking for the opportunity. Now, this is not, you know, another way of saying this is not a spiritual bypass where we just immediately go to, well, everything happens for a reason. Because look, sometimes things happen that are painful, that are confusing, that, you know, it's important for us to grieve. It's important for us to go into whatever we're experiencing. However, paying attention to our mindset and how we're relating to it and what we're thinking and the questions that we're asking, those are ways that we can, in a healthy and conscious way, intervene and do it individually. And then again, in a work context, if we do that collectively, that can make us a really powerful team or organization.
0: Yeah, and I and I love the way that you reframe the question in the book and, and post it. I, for all my listeners out there, you can find the podcast in there. I'll, I might put a link in the blog here, but Byron Katie is probably one of the best at this. And she, <laughs> she says, is it true, is it really true? Because what happens right. is you start to think that this stuff is true and right you know it I, I I know you know this but I ended up with a degree in spiritual psychology from University of Santa Monica right and, and we used to always say you don't have to believe everything you think <laughs> yeah and the reality is that is a good one for embracing the growth in your mindset because for sure the things that are holding your back are the things that you think you're believing yeah. now the fifth and last principle is to create a championship team yeah uh, you cited a great concept that was introduced to you by a patrick linacon i think the author of the book the five dysfunctions of a team oh yeah pat um,
1: lencioni is his name lencioni, actually, yeah. sorry i yeah. blew yeah. that rig big time didn't <laughs> i
0: um so can you tell us um what that is and how in your estimation um we can build this champion team?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, Pat Pat's book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, has had a big impact on me and my work and how I think about teamwork. Prior to even reading that book, you know, my passion for teamwork really comes from my background as an athlete because one of the things, and everybody listening, whether you ever played team sports or not, everyone can relate to being on a team where the talent on the team is strong, but the team isn't very good. And it's confusing, right? It's like, wait, we have smart, talented people on this team. Why aren't we a good team? And on the flip side, I'm sure almost everybody listening can also relate to being part of a team or a group. We're not like every single person in the group or on the team is an absolute rock star in and of themselves, but something about the team just kind of works, right? And that's that intangible quality, Greg, you were referring to earlier that, that, what is that? And in sports, we call it chemistry. In business, we call it culture. It's kind of hard to define but you know when you have it and you know when you don't have it. And so a lot of the work that I've done over the years with teams is about how do you create the conditions for that team chemistry, that team culture to be as positive and, you know, as productive as possible. And it's, it's, a, it's a tricky dynamic because it's ever-changing and evolving depending on the people and what's going on and the environment and the work we're doing and all of that. But so much of it has to do with, how we relate to each other. And one of the things that Pat talks about when I'm working with leadership teams in particular inside of organizations is that leadership teams tend to more often be teams of leaders as opposed to actual leadership teams, meaning they all report to the same person and they all sit around and, you know, but they really think about their team as the people who report to them. That's my team if I'm a manager. But in reality, the first team that you have is the team that you're a member of. The second team is the team who reports to you. So when managers inside of organizations start to really get this and realize, oh, my peers are my teammates. The people who report to me, they're important. I'm gonna spend more time and energy with them, but they're actually my second team, not like second class, but then it becomes, oh, we start to look at how we can collaborate and work together. And for those of us who work in smaller organizations or even work for ourselves, thinking about teamwork from the standpoint of how do I collaborate with people in such a way that it brings out the best in them and in me, as opposed to what can I get, what can I give, and how can we come together? You know, And as the saying goes, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, which is so true, because any of us who've ever accomplished anything really great, even if we quote-unquote did it ourselves, we didn't really do it ourselves. We had a lot of help and support, and most of the most fulfilling work that we ultimately do in life, whatever kind of work we do, is when we do it in collaboration with other people.
0: Well, Mike, I know that um, for my listeners that are out there, really taking a book like this and diving in, um, the podcast that we've just done, gives people a really great perspective on how important those principles are to changing themselves, one, and then changing the whole dynamics of the group work when they're inside of a company. All of these principles really do bring to light um, the value associated with actually taking these principles and putting work. And for my listeners, um, we've been on with Mike Robbins, um, and you can go to his website at www.mikerobbins-robbins.com to learn more about him, uh, his books, this particular book. This book will break on May 1st. Um, Can they go up to Amazon right now and do pre-orders on it?
1: They absolutely can pre-order it, and then one other thing I'll mention about it: if you go to mike-robbins.com/work, you can order the book from whatever place you'd like to get them from. But there's also on that site for people who do pre-order or order it when it comes out, there are a couple of audios, Greg, that I recorded specifically. Like if you're an individual contributor, if you're a manager, or if you're an entrepreneur, have your own business, I recorded hour-long audios specifically for each of those sort of roles in work and how this all relates to them specifically. So I think people might enjoy those.
0: Well, it's a great offer for them to do that. So if you want to go to his website, we'll put a link up there at the website um, that'll take you to that. And then you can click on your favorite book buyer, wherever you want to buy this book. Um, You can also, Mike is, as he said, he speaks all over the country, you know, so look for him on the website, send him um, uh, um, an email to find out more about him. Um, One of the things that he's really well known is his speaking. And so I would tell you, if you're a company out there listening and want to book him, uh, go to the website and contact his assistant and and get on his schedule to be booked. He would be a great addition to your conference. So, um, Mike, thanks so much for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes with us about uh, your new book, uh, Bring Your Whole Self to Work, How Vulnerability Unlocks Creativity, Connection, and Performance. Thanks for being on.
1: Thanks, Greg.